Hey everybody, my name is Andrew Mook, pastor here at Sanctuary Church. Great to be with you. I just wanted to give you a quick reminder before we jump into the message today. Our gathering, this broadcast, doesn't end uh, when I finish teaching. Uh, we, uh, directly following the message, we all jump over into the Zoom. There'll be a link that appears, a button if you're watching on our platform. Just click that and uh, up will pop a Zoom window and uh, we're going to do Take Communion together. It's a really, really short period of time. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, like child dedications in there, times to tell stories in the future. This week, just five minutes together to take communion. Uh, so if you have your bread and your cup ready, or if you don't, there'll be a bit like 30 seconds or so directly following the message uh, to be able to go and grab some bread, water, juice, wine, whatever you have, and then meet us over in the chat. So we're beginning a new series today, and I want to begin uh, our time in Mark. The series actually is going to follow through uh, in the book of 1 Peter in the coming weeks, um, but we're going to begin in the book of Mark. Uh, this is a gospel, somebody who has been in proximity with Jesus, and uh, he's writing an account, um, a very pointed account of what Jesus has said and what he has done. And so Mark 3 Verse, let's start in verse 32. A crowd was sitting around him. Him here is Jesus. Uh, and they told him, your mother and your brother are outside looking for you. So we just kind of jumped in the middle of a story. Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus responds, who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray as we dive into the text today, as we spend some time looking at context and background and ask ourselves what this might have to say to us and to our future, to, uh, into this uncertain moment, Lord, we ask that you'd give us attentive and expectant hearts. We, we, uh, there's so many here who are watching so many here who are engaging, who believe um, uh, that so much in our heart can change, convictions can change, habits can change, that life can begin a new course um, just through exploring your word. And so we are ready and open uh, and willing to receive what you have for us. Pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this question, so who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Uh, this was obviously a rhetorical question. In the first century, just like today, uh, Jesus has a family, an actual nuclear family, his mother Mary, his brothers James and Jude. But then in this section, Jesus uh, pulls this move where he looks around at the followers, his disciples, uh, his apprentices uh, who are around him, his crew that he is sort of beginning this new movement with. And he looks around at all of them, his inner ring, and he says, here, this is actually my family, my mother and my brothers. He says, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So a quick and obvious and easy observation here is that for Jesus, his community of apprentices is his family. Jesus uh, calls uh, his father, calls God his father. And this is language throughout the scriptures. Um, and so what does Jesus call his apprentices, brothers and sisters? Uh, the Greek word here is adelphoi, uh, and it's used not only by Jesus, but by every single one of the writers of the New Testament. It was used 342 times in the New Testament, and it's basically the 
like dominant idea frame uh, for what kind of community, for the kind of community that Jesus is creating. It's important to name this because there are all sorts of communities. Yoga is a kind of community. CrossFit is a type of community or a cult, probably more like. Marriage is a type of community. The nuclear family, uh, your best friends, these are all communities. Your local school is a type of community. Um, For Jesus, family, family is his frame for the kind of community that he is beginning, which sounds really nice and very pleasant and very familiar if you've been around our church for a while and very G-rated. But Many scholars have pointed out that this is one of Jesus's most radical ideas, most radical frames. And so I want to give us a little background to appreciate just what Jesus is doing, what he is setting and reframing. So two things you need to know, you need to get into your head about first century Jewish culture to make sense of how radical this is. First off, anthropologists talk about a strong group society versus a weak group society, or in other language, it's individualist versus collectivist. Jesus's first century world was a strong group society to the core. Uh, There's a working definition of a strong group society from the cultural anthropologist B.J. Molina, and he says this, The person, in a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. Correspondingly, he or she perceives other persons primarily in terms of the groups to which they belong. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member and it may use objects in the environment, other groups of people in the society, and the members of the group itself to facilitate group-oriented goals and objectives. That's a lot. Examples of strong group societies would be, say, Korean culture. Uh, My friend, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, has some responsibilities to his family members that um, I never had kind of baked into me how I think about what it means to reorient my life to live near and care for extended family. Uh, Most cultures on the continent of Africa, most Arabic cultures, basically pretty much every single culture around the world and down through human history, except for late modern Western Europeans, the culture, which is the culture that we now kind of swim in, is a strong group society. And in a weak group society, the individual actually has priority over the group, which is where we live. Most of us just assume that our desires and our preferences and our autonomy, our self-determination, our happiness is more important than whatever group we identify uh, with. So in Rhode Island, we've been socialized in Massachusetts, anywhere in the country that you are right now. We've been socialized to believe that our dreams and goals and personal fulfillment ought to take precedent over the well-being of any group. Our culture has powerfully socialized us to believe that personal happiness and fulfillment should take precedent over the connections we have with others in both our families and our churches. Uh, So we run often from the painful uh, relationships that we've been placed in. Joseph Hellerman, who, by the way, I owe a 
a deep debt of gratitude to his book, Church's Family, uh, for this message today. Uh, Joseph Hellerman says, the tune of radical individualism has been playing in our ears at full volume for decades. We are dancing to the music with gusto, and it is costing us dearly. Strong group cultures tend to have like very clear roles, whether it's gender roles or family roles, parents and children. It's often like an honor and shame culture um, because in the West, we've redefined freedom. So it, it can tend to feel not free. We've redefined freedom in the West to mean the ability to do whatever we want as long as it doesn't harm others, which is not the classical definition of freedom in Christian theology or Greek philosophy. But because of that redefinition, we tend to judge strong groups culture as oppressive to our individualism. I say all this because we have to acknowledge that Jesus' world was a strong group world. And in that world, your primary group was your family. You can see how this is critical to understanding what Jesus is getting at in, in any place in the scriptures. All right, second piece, stay with me here. Second piece of background I want to give you is that family at the time of Jesus um, was, like, was built around um, the, the patriarchy. It was patrilineal. You don't need to, rem- you don't need to remember like, that word, um, but it just means that your family was defined by your father's bloodline. This is what it was defined by, not by marriage, um, and this would be true of Jewish culture, Greek culture, Roman culture. This is why there are no surnames, like no last names in the Bible. You read about so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, daughter of so-and-so. There's no like Andrew Mook in the Bible. It would be Andrew, son of Lyle. Shout out to dad. In a culture like this, your spouse is technically not a part of your family. Marriage, for the most part, was arranged, often contractual. Now, there's absolutely, there absolutely was romantic love in the ancient world, but marriage was often more about what was best for your group, which turned out to be your family more than what was best for you or your emotional happiness. Your uh, most intimate emotional bond was likely with your sibling, not with your spouse. And there's a number of ancient stories about that in literature. In the same way, uh, that in the West, we just kind of assume that your most intimate relationship is or will be with your spouse or with your lover or with your significant other. Uh, if you were in ancient Mediterranean world, you would just assume that your most intimate relationship would be with your brother or sister. Now, this is fascinating to me. Because what does Jesus call his apprentices? He calls him Adelphoi. He calls them siblings, brothers and sisters, the most intimate relational paradigm in his world, he calls people outside of his bloodline. Jesus calls his community of apprentices to function like a strong group style family. The reason this was radical in his day was not because Jesus calls his community to function like a strong group family. That wasn't a new idea, right? From page one of the Bible, as soon as you, you, you just pick up that we were designed by God for a relationship, followers of Jesus believe that at the center of reality is a community of three in oneness, uh, Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. One passage of the Bible says that, uh, it says, let us make mankind in our image, in our image, in our likeness. Uh, Dr. Gary Brashears has this beautiful saying. He says, uh, quote, God is a family who makes family. 
I love that. God is love, and the reality is that love cannot exist without relationship. We were created in the Genesis story out of the overflow of God's relational, generous, self-giving love, and we're created in God's image and likeness, meaning we're created for relationships, in particular for a family where we live in the flow of this three-in-oneness. But none of this was a new idea. Even the idea of God as father. What was radical is that Jesus, what Jesus does to upset here the status quo was two things. One, Jesus does not define his family by blood, but by, quote, whoever does God's will, which is a way of saying the family. In Jesus's world, um, which, which is, by the way, far more ethnocentric than ours. Jesus is saying his family is open not only to Jewish people, but to Gentiles as well. His vision was for this multi-ethnic family made up of Ghanaians and Guatemalans and Americans and Italians and Ugandans. And we, we talk about, right, we talked about this last week, a bunch, if you were listening. This was one of the ideas that God Jesus killed this event that finally brought on Jesus' execution was he was cleansing the temple. And what does he say at like the apex of that story? He says, my house shall be a house for all nations, which in the Greek is this word ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnic. He says, but you've turned it into a den of robbers, which is a quote from Jeremiah saying, basically, you guys have all lost the plot. You are supposed to be a blessing. You are supposed to be a light to the whole world. You are supposed to be a tribe for every tribe, right? In this current moment, tribalism is running rampant. Everyone's looking for their people and their opinions, their political ideologies to double down into. And this... um, group of people that Jesus was forming that really was the the whole story of the Hebrew people leading up to Jesus was this was, yes, a tribe, but it was a tribe that existed for the benefit of all of the other ones. And he's saying, you've lost your calling. He goes in and says, you have turned this place into a house for all nations and you have used all of these different things to exclude. You don't walk into a place like Jerusalem at this time say that sort of thing and pull that sort of stunt in the temple and walk away alive. So all that said, an even more radical idea for his day, even more so than that, was Jesus's call to put family ahead of your bloodline. In Jesus's context, this was unthinkable. Jesus is the oldest living male in his family line. He is responsible before God and his village for his mother and his brothers and all of his siblings, which by the way, we read later, he does take care of Ma. But he seems to be saying that his blood family is a part of a much bigger family. And that family, to just be clear and unequivocal, is more important. Now, uh, it's been popularized like many conservative Christian movements and this is not a bad thing, but they have pointed out all of the pro-family teachings of Jesus about divorce and marriage and honoring your father and mother, and there are many. But scholars argue that there are just as many anti-family teachings of Jesus um, than there are pro. And and what I mean by that, by anti-family, is simply that there are really hard sayings, really hard things that Jesus would say, like you must hate your father and your mother to follow after me. 
the best way to read those, they argue, is that Jesus is coming from a very traditional culture where to this day, if you were to, if you were to say, um, if you were an ultra-Orthodox Jewish family, you were in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish family and you converted to the way of Jesus, you were baptized into the way of Jesus, your family would literally hold a funeral for you. Jesus is saying, you have to give up your blood family to join my new multi-ethnic family. And if you don't do that, you can't actually be my disciple. Again, radical. This was a radical call in a strong group, patriarchal system and family to give that all up to join Jesus's new family. And it's just as radical today. It's just the settings have changed. Here are two reasons why. One, because Jesus does not question the strong group approach to community. He just says, you have to make his group your primary group. Again, this is still wildly at odds with our Western sensibility of individualism. Here's why I want this to hit home. Come back to me if I've lost you. Think of the definition that I read a few minutes ago about strong group culture. My friend, John Mark, took the liberty of rewriting this. And all he does is swap out a definition, uh, swap out strong group for church. So hear this definition with the word church put in instead of strong, a strong group society. Um, See what happens with your heart as I read this. So in the church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of the church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. Now, wait, don't, don't, don't turn off. How many of you are like freaking out right now? Like, I knew this was a cult sanctuary. What kind of name is that for a church? This freaks me out a little bit as well. If you really took that to heart, you really like followed along with that. That should like produce some unease. But I want you to ask yourself, sanctuary is your, is your church home. Think about your home church or think about the people that you follow Jesus with. Is this how I live? I'm responsible to my community for my actions, my destiny, my career, my development, my life in general. I, I'm, I'm giving this to my community. I, I'm free to do what I want and, and, and I feel that I feel is right and necessary only if it's in accord with what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our community. Only if the action is in the community's, the church's best interest. My community has sort of priority over me, the people that I walk with. Pretty much none of us think this way unless you are watching from a strong group uh, society. Maybe you're a first generation immigrant or something. This is the call though of Jesus to family. Now, secondly, for Jesus to be a child of the father, to be a child of the father is at the same time to be a brother or sister in the family. A dominant image associated with joining the church in all the accounts of the early church and the Bible and beyond is this word adoption. Adoption, adoption. When that judge gavel hits the wood, at that moment, 
that child that's being adopted simultaneously becomes a like daughter to the parents, but also becomes a sibling. Friends of mine who just recently adopted, like whether their, their daughter they just adopted, whether she um, wanted, <laughs> wants them or not, I'm not, I'm sure there'll be times where she is not a big fan of being a, da- a, uh, a sister to some of her brothers, her older brothers. Um, she has no say in that. This is just how family works. She doesn't get to pick. She doesn't get to be in a relationship just with mom and dad, but not in relationship with her brothers. The two go together. Jesus's vision for church is that of family. It's not a building. It's not an event, much less a nonprofit. It's a family. And this is how we're supposed to operate in relationship. Think of the best practices of a healthy family. And I I recognize this may be painful for some of you. But what is, what it, we all think have a vision of what, especially maybe some of us who've come from a hard family background. What are the basic practices of a healthy family? A healthy, a healthy family eats together. Uh, the philosopher Albert Borgman, uh, who became an expert on the effect of TV, on the disintegration of the American family uh, and society, he says, uh, quote, yeah, fornication is bad, adultery is bad, but not sitting down to dinner is worse. In other words, like this isn't like a side issue. Eating together is central to the life of the family. We did a whole series last year on just the table and the power of eating together. Jesus, we're told, right? He came, comes to seek and to save. And then we ask the question, how did he come? He came eating and drinking. Secondly, a family does life together. They spend time together. Three, they are loving and affectionate with each other. Four, they hold each other accountable, which looks like discipline for a younger member or looks like intervention for someone who's older. By the way, I know we hate to hear this stuff in the West, but the New Testament is full of examples of church discipline. The idea where you would sort of like shut somebody out or push somebody to the side of community until a time that they repent because they've been contributing pain or poison or cancer to the community rather than life. Like there's so many examples of that. All healthy families live in a balance of love and acceptance and loving accountability. And Jesus's family is no different. Five, healthy families share resources. What's mine is yours. Six, healthy family shares responsibilities. After dinner, we all like pitch in to clean the kitchen. That's why when we talk about serving at Sanctuary, coming out to events, or we're gonna be doing some things here in this space soon, like we're gonna call on the family members. If you're a partner, we just assume we're gonna get a couple hundred signups right away because yeah, I'm part of the family. I'm gonna help out. This is what we do. Seven, families bear one another's burdens in the language of Galatians. We bear each other's burdens burdens. We carry each other. We walk with each other. We sit with each other in grief. Eight, we make decisions together. Um, Pastor Sarah and Greg, they have like family meetings regularly. Uh, I I know a bunch of families who do this. They just have like, hey, we're going to call a family meeting and we're going to talk and we're going to outline the week and where are we at and what are we doing? Uh, There's a discernment together that happens in community. Nine, uh, we release each other into into each other's destiny. Like, I see this in you, and I call out this destiny in your future. How can I aid you in that end? 
the best brothers and sisters and moms and dads, despite any sort of New England sarcasm you may have baked into you or cynicism, you call out the best in each other and you show up when it's time to show up to cheer each other on as they step into their call. And then 10, you're faithful to each other unto death. Now think about your community right now or the community maybe that you want to be a part of. Maybe you've never really joined a home church here at Sanctuary. You've wanted to get more involved in, in the community. Like, can it be said of you, whether currently now in whatever community you're in or what you love or, or what you can say about your intentions or goals, that you eat together, that you're loving and affectionate towards each other, that you can have hard conversations, that you're sharing your resources, that you share responsibilities, that you bear each other's burdens, that you make decisions together, that you release each other into your destiny, that you're faithful to each other. Now, if that very simple sketch of life together in the family of Jesus sounds crazy to you, if you're thinking right now, I'm, that, that, I guess that sounds all right, but I'm kind of cool with coming to church every once in a while when it works with my schedule, I'll, I'll maybe tune into broadcast like every once in a bit, but you know, I'm not going to like bend over backwards. I'm definitely not logging on to the Zoom thing, you know, because I don't really like Zoom or whatever. Like, like if, 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 if that's sort of your MO, like I, I'll follow Jesus on my terms. And I say this, I want to be very clear with no judgment and no edge at all. I want to be clear. You think that way. I think that way. I've been conditioned to think that way because we have been socialized by Western hyper-individualistic culture. And I'm hoping somebody out there has some pushback to that because I've got about 18 books to throw at you. Like, the, the casual church engager, like that idea, we did not get that idea from Jesus. We did not get that idea from the New Testament. We did not get that idea from the traditional culture, which it grew up in. And by the way, it's still thriving around the world. We got that idea from somewhere. We've been shaped by a very narrow individualistic Western lens. Jesus's vision of church as family simply doesn't align with that, which makes this sermon hard. And I'm sure I've already lost some folks because it run, because if we really run with the idea of church as family, we have to acknowledge that not only is family um, the place of deep healing, not only maybe some of you came up in a healthy family structure, like, yeah, I love this. I could buy into this. You're like your mind is already shifting into like a honeymoon period of like, yes, I'm so glad Andrew's talking about this. Just like it can be a place of deep healing and joy and safety, family's also sometimes the place of our deepest hurt. As a general rule, our highest highs and lowest lows both come from relationships. We were created for relationships, whether you're introverted or extroverted. Loneliness, in fact, is proof of our relational design. We're designed for and defined by, designed for and defined by our relationships for good or bad. We were both born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. And we cannot be, um, we cannot be, we can't not be in relationship and be remotely healthy. Uh, there's uh, tons of writing in the realm of neuroscience that tells us that from the time we are in our mother's womb, our brain is wired to attach the people that, um, 
to attach to people. And they call this part of uh, our like brain the attachment system. And it literally comes online before we come out of the womb. Now, the language used in psychology for this phenomenon is attachment theory. Um, and it's, just, it's a very simple idea that we, um, we have this thing built into us as Christians, we would say, by God. Um, it's, it's something that's like hardwired to attach to other people. You see this in a baby when they make eye contact with the mother while breastfeeding. And how we attach or do not attach when we're a little kid or a baby in particular, um, all of that gets encoded into our DNA. And it becomes sort of the way that we attach or do not attach to other people in adult relationships. Now, there's a lot more that we could actually say. In short, of all the dysfunction that arises from less than healthy attachment, the way that we heal is actually the same. The only way to heal an unhealthy, an unhealthy attachment style is through healthy relationships. So the main thing I want to communicate to you is that the way of healing and life and flourishing, the way God will heal brokenness and trauma in your heart in the culture of our community is through his family. James Penbreaker is a social psychologist who did this massive nationwide research study on trauma and its effect on adult long-term health and why some people seem to recover from trauma and other people seem to basically never recover. His hypothesis as a researcher, when he went into this, his idea was, well, probably uh, it's like most trauma, um, anything that has a social stigma or shame attached to it, um, that, that will be why people don't actually recover. So for instance, the suicide of a spouse or rape, a few things like that, when it's that impactful and there's that much shame attached to it. Now, what he found was that was absolutely not true, that the nature of the trauma, like what happened to you was next to irrelevant. All that really mattered was whether or not somebody on the other side of the trauma was in loving relationship if they had a family, if they had a community, if they had a support group, if they had a church. He had virtually every single person come back healthier than ever before on the other side of trauma, no matter what had happened to them. Because we are both hurt at the deepest level by relationship and we are healed at the deepest level by relationship. Finally, the major difference between family and other forms of community is that you really like, can't drop out of for better or for worse. Like You're in it. When you become part of a church, when you become a partner here at Sanctuary, you commit to a home church, you, you like, should have some healthy expectations. First of all, this group doesn't have to be all of your best friends in one place. That's amazing if it works out that way. Friendship, though, is based on chemistry and personality and life stage, and none of that is bad. It's just kind of hard to predict when all those pieces will come together. If it works, great. Something powerful about that, for, for sure. But more often than that, it doesn't. Family's a little bit different. Whether or not you are best friends with your siblings, you show up for Christmas. Like, unless there's some ongoing toxic behavior. Robert Frost famously wrote, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. <laughs> I'm not here because of some consumeristic impulse. I'm here, you say, because I'm, I'm bonded. 
Just like Dominique Gilliard said a few weeks back in his message to us when he was talking about race in the church, he said, water, baptism, the community of Christ, that water is thicker than blood. I don't need to tell you that community can be hard, that the honeymoon stage will wear off, but I want to remind you that it's the people who stay, the people who stay, who grow. Joseph Hellerman, uh, again, writes, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Put another way, we become like Jesus for the most part in relationships. So if you commit, you'll almost always grow in self-understanding because your stuff comes out and you mature in your ability to relate to God and to others. This is especially the case for those um, who stick it out through the really, really hard things. Long-term interpersonal relationships, he writes, are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. In other words, the people who stay grow. We either grow together or we don't grow at all. Our church is built around the simple idea of practicing the way of Jesus together. We believe that to be a follower of Jesus or an apprentice of Jesus is to order your life, to journey in four directions, upward to be with Jesus, inward to become like him, outward to begin to do what he did. And then we, we have a fourth journey point, which is withward. In other words, in all things, in the up, in the in, in the out, we do this all together because we were made to live in community. The way we state this value this value of family, this, this word we made up, with word, it goes like this. We are called to journey together as one body. We value the image of God in all people everywhere. We believe that we were created to live deeply with one another, carrying each other's burdens, sharing our possessions, to pray for and to confess our sins to each other, to suffer and celebrate together. It's in these honest, loving relationships that God transforms forms us and truth becomes a reality. The way of Jesus cannot be lived alone. And so I want to leave you with a picture. I've shared this before over the years, and it's one of my favorite images of what the church uh, should be. And it's the church as a preview. Think of a movie preview. It's attending a, a, a movie just before uh, COVID hit. Um, and like during like all these previews, he leaned over to me and said, we have got to see that. And it got me thinking about like the art of the movie trailer. There are so many films and we have so little time. Um, and those two minute clips have to reach into our hearts and garner that like coveted response I have to see that. The church is like that. A compelling preview of what's to come. A compelling preview of the future. An outpost of heaven, of everything in its right place. Every tribe and tongue and nation, in this case, at the table together. Intended to draw the world in to see the full picture. Your life as part of the church is meant to be a preview. We are called to offer a picture of how beautiful 
self-denial and shared discipleship and mission can be in a culture of radical individualism. We live in a world that too often looks at parts of the church and that they see division and exclusivity and tribalism and the same individualism that exists everywhere else. And they just say, I don't want to be a part of that. And so together as a church, Sanctuary, may we put like the brilliance of Jesus on display through our community and through relationships in such a way that elicits only one response from the watching world. I have to be part of that. The future, with all the uncertainty about what's gonna come, are we gonna be back in lockdown in a couple weeks? When is this gonna kick back in? When is this gonna happen? The future We can say for sure, for certain, for our flourishing, the future is family. Family can change the world. Family can change the world. This is why we open our homes every week to journey with word, to cultivate family, is to make space to, as the Bible says, be at peace with each other, to wash one another's feet, to love one another, to love one another, to love one another, to love one another, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to honor one another above ourselves, to live in harmony with one another, to love one another, to stop passing judgment on one another, to accept one another just as Christ accepted you, to instruct one another, to greet one another with a holy kiss. There's a whole sermon there. When you come together to eat, to wait for each other, to have equal concern for each other, to greet one another with a holy kiss, to greet one another with a holy kiss, to serve one another in love. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. So don't. Let us, be, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. They may not, not, may not be, but consider them that way. Do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Love each other. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Encourage one another daily. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has to receive uh, receive to serve others. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Love one another. 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 This is what your future can look like. Whew.